I really view real estate development as, as an incredible calling. Not everybody can do it. It, it. it takes an enormous set of skills that are really varied. Scott Simon is a real estate developer, happiness entrepreneur, and founder of Scare Your Soul. He's dedicated to creating, curating, and leading opportunities for people around the world to be happier and more courageous. Scott founded the Scare Your Soul organization in 2015, organically growing it from one Facebook post to a global movement with weekly courage challenges, content on social media, email newsletters, and 60 volunteer ambassadors worldwide. He has presented to groups around the world on TV and podcasts, given a TEDx talk, and has brought his passion for courage to retreats, a courage life coaching practice, and courage-focused mindfulness meditation in person and online. Prior to Scare Your Soul, Scott co-founded Thrive, the country's first happiness incubator, where he and a team of 30 volunteers developed and led dozens of community events to share science-based interventions. Scott earned a BA in English literature from Skidmore College, where he studied with Pulitzer Prize winner, Dr. Stephen Milhauser, an MA in nonprofit management from Case Western Reserve University, and a certificate in real estate finance from Cleveland State University. He studied positive psychology with Professor Tal Ben-Shahar, who at the time taught Harvard's most popular course, The Science of Happiness, and earned a certificate in positive psychology with Dr. Ben-Shahar at the Whole Being Institute. Most importantly, Scott is a father to Noah and Tyla, who bring him unequaled joy and continued opportunities to push his comfort zone as a dad. Welcome. We are here today on the Gravity Podcast with Scott Simon. Scott, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Brett, so great to be with you. Yeah, I'm in, looking forward to this conversation. We've had a chance to connect and get to know each other a little bit. And uh, through our great mutual friend, shout out to Christopher Celeste, who somehow always knows exactly uh, when somebody is going to be a great fit to connect with. <laughs> there, there are those people who are innate connectors and know when people need to meet each other. And he is a prime example. Yeah, no question. So let's get into it. Let's uh, let's share with our audience your journey. Um, let's start, you know, at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your your early childhood, your kind of family dynamics, all of that fun stuff. Sure. Um, so I grew up. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Grew up in a very warm and loving nuclear family. Um, the oldest of three, um, with um, a dad from Shaker Heights, Ohio, and a mom from a small town of Marion, Ohio, and um, have considered myself lucky uh, beyond belief in terms of the uh, the close family bonds that not only we had back then, but that we have maintained to this day. Uh, but I have to tell you, when I look back at my childhood, I think of a child in fear. I grew up basically the shortest, <laughs> shyest kid in my school. I remember seeing people way after high school ended, past college, who would say, 
I think I remember you. you <laughs> we may have gone to school for 12 years together, but uh, you were that quiet kid who sat in the back row and never raised his hand. So that was me. Um, I was uh, bullied growing up, um, verbally and, and certainly physically. Um, and uh, so when I look back at those years and I... I I now look back at it almost as a gift. I, I have to tell you, I feel like one of the key lessons in life is looking at the most challenging times that we ever have in our lives and seeing them as gifts. And I really do see, I didn't like it a bit back then, but looking back at it now, it kind of formed me because I grew up so much kind of wanting to be invisible uh, because if you're invisible, um, People don't pay attention. They don't beat you up. They don't berate you. They don't leave you out. And, and that was my goal for most of my childhood. Uh, my close friends were my grandparents. Those were probably my best friends. Uh, and my brother and my sister. And over the years, I had a few friends that kind of came and went. But I lived a pretty small existence. Hmm. Interesting. So thank you for sharing that. Let, let's just back up a little because I think, you know, this is exactly um, the point of the podcast because you're not alone in that experience. And um, you've certainly arrived at a place where you can see how it was a gift. And I share your worldview on the hardest things really being there to serve us if we learn to embrace them that way. But that's not always the case for some people. Some people really don't feel that way. And, and in fact, you know, don't see it at all that way. That's not the experience they have. So, so let's talk this through a little bit. Tell me a little bit more specifically, um, like how old were you and, and what kinds of things were happening that had you so fear-based, the, the kind of you know, alone, shy aspect were, were you were you first shy or were you first bullied and then that made you shy? Kind of tell me a little more what was going on. Sure. So um, I think I was shy from the get-go. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, I was very sensitive. I, I think I was a very loving child, certainly not athletic and felt uncomfortable about that. Never engaged in team sports growing up. And I, I think, you know, being the smallest and not having athletic ability, really, I don't know how other kids felt about me, but I know I felt um, kind of unworthy, you know, and, um, you know, never being in any way the smartest or feeling in any way popular. I can just remember, you know, desperately holding on to two or three close friends growing up. And, uh, and really relying on family. But uh, I think it, it, it came from a feeling of shyness growing up. And, and then when you're shy, and I, I'm sure you know, many people can you know, identify with this, it, it, it stunts you in so many ways where you could stand out. Because you don't feel comfortable raising your hand, you don't feel comfortable stepping forward, you, people can't see those ways that you shine. And it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I, I feel like kind of from the very get-go that I was behind the eight ball. 
and didn't really have anything spectacular about me that was going to kind of push me forward. And, you know, the positive psychologists sometimes talk, talk about it as a downward spiral. I think that's exactly the way that it was for me, that I was bordering on an honors student that had some capabilities, but didn't really have the confidence or the ability to speak my mind to uh, be able to express myself. And that just led to, you know, other kids, um, you know, taking advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, this is really very important, really. I, I, I think you're right. You know, it, it can really take on a life of its own and this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where you actually start to believe that these stories are true and that maybe you don't have a way forward or you can't actually um, be able to put the things about you that really are your natural gifts into the world. And what I'm hearing is like a kind of societal conditioning that took place, right? Because sometimes this comes from family where, and men in particular, where fathers will say, you need to play sports and do masculine, you know, things that boys do, right? This, you know, I I grew up in, in uh, the first 10 years of my life in Akron, we've connected on kind of being from that part of Ohio. And there was very much, you know, in, in my house, you know, at that age, an expectation that you play sports and that you not just play, but you'd be, you know, really good at them, win, right? And, and, um, and that was at least, you know, my dad and, and I think that's true for a lot of men, boys, parents, even still today. And some of the more sensitive qualities that some boys are born with, you know, that was me, right? I was probably, although I was able to perform athletically, I was also more wired or inclined to also want to explore the sensitive sides of myself too, which you know, there wasn't a lot of room for that. So, so maybe you could just kind of explain this dynamic of your, your loving family and, and at the same time, this societal conditioning that's taking place. Sure. So, you know, it's funny. I look back on it now and, and I'm a parent and you, you make decisions as best you can to make your kids happy and safe and self-actualized. And I know that my parents were doing that. Um, but my family kind of became my refuge and it, it allowed me to not push. It allowed me to retreat. And I did so, you know, we all have our own mythologies and we remember things a certain way, but if I'm really, you know, if I really dig deep, you know, I think, you know, my family to me was this incredibly comfortable bubble to retreat to when life became challenging outside of it. And, you know, listen, uh, um, uh, nobody wants to be bullied. Um, and, and for me, you know, being bullied was a, a huge uh, uh, challenge for me growing up. But I also didn't really put myself out there. I'm not sure that I either had the wherewithal to do it. And I certainly didn't have others pushing me. I, I didn't have somebody like your dad who was 
giving me those kind of societal cues of you got to be the captain of the football team. My parents were more like, you're sensitive, you're sweet. Come on, spend time with us tonight. Let's just watch a movie. And, and you know, and I, I know that came from a place of love. Um, but what it didn't do was it didn't force me out of the nest. And so I stayed in that nest for a really long time, oh, literally my entire childhood. And again, I, I know the intent of it, but the outcome was a kid who was scared who was who felt invisible and didn't feel in any way an incentive to change it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, fascinating because you know a lot of ways our experiences are are kind of quite uh, the opposite in that regard. But you know we both arrived at this similar conclusion, which was like in my case, you know some of that real toughness that was you know put on me, which I think I know was more than a child is supposed to have, um, did end up serving me well, right? Um, And so, you know, um, the fact that your parents honored your sensitivity and honored those parts of you serves you well. And then there's the unintended consequences of being so loving that, you know, maybe some tough love could have been beneficial also. But, But I think your point that... You know, parents uh, really, uh, it's a lot harder when you're a parent, you start to see your parents in a whole nother light, right? So true. And uh, and then you as a parent are then making decisions based on how you were parented, uh, trying to kind of splice, uh, you know, how you view the world based on how you were parented and those decisions that you want to make, which run counter to that, right? Like you're raised a certain way and you think it's the way that, that kids should be raised because it's all you know. But, you, you know, if you can kind of move out of that and look, look, you know, from the outside and say, you know what, that's not what I want to either do to my kids or provide for my kids. I want my kids to, you know, do these things differently. Uh, that to me kind of like takes parenting to the next level. You're off of autopilot. You're not parenting just the way you were parented. You're parenting on a, a, a based on a new worldview that says this worked for me, but or it didn't, and I have other humans <laughs> that came after me that uh, that deserve something different. And, yeah, and, and that's been a you know that's a whole nother journey that we all take as parents. Yeah, and and again, that's where like this gift part comes in where you can kind of go, oh, I got to see how I'm going to try to do it better and, and you know, give that to the next generation. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. So tell me more about, you know, what happens as you start to kind of move through school in this bullied and, you know, fearful way. Uh, well, mediocrity is the best word that I can that describe everything I did, I think was mediocre. I, I didn't push myself. I wasn't being pushed. And again, uh, this has, this has come to reverberate throughout my life. I, I think I was in a comfort bubble uh, that, that was lavished around me by the people that cared about me. And, um, and, and the outside world just couldn't get in. And so I, didn't perform super successfully, didn't make a lot of new friendships, didn't push out into, into interesting experiences. Uh, the only thing that I did that I think made a difference in my life was uh, my parents really pushed me to take music lessons, first piano and then guitar. 
that was something that was a, a gift beyond getting. They really had to push me to do it. And it was something that kind of came from both of them because they felt they came from very musical backgrounds. And, and that was something at least that I could hang my hat on at home. I certainly wasn't out performing, but I felt like at home, that was something that I could do to express myself. I could, I could bring out my guitar and play and express myself. But other than that, that was about it. My friendships were, you know, n- you know didn't exist other than a couple of close friends. And then at, at one point in, in early high school, um, uh, I had a very small social circle. And one of, my, one of the boys in that social circle and I liked the same girl. This was literally, you know, the beginning of, uh, I had never really uh, had a girl interested in me ever. And um, he and I both liked the same girl. And he and I had a disagreement about it. And he encouraged all of our friends to stop speaking to me. And so I went from having a small group of friends to having literally no friends. And I mean, it, it sounds cliche today because it feels kind of cinematic, but I literally remember walking into the lunchroom every day at my high school with my lunch on my tray and desperately looking for a table where I could sit with somebody that might talk to me. And for a good portion of my early high school, uh, I sat alone at lunch. And, you know, when you hear that, it sounds, you know, you can, you can picture it and you feel badly for the person. But when you're an early teen and your only currency is friendships and, and relationships and social standing and athletics, um, I had none of those things. So it was a really, really tough time, really tough time of my life. Terribly tough, I'm sure. Yeah, I think these are right stories sometimes that... You do see, you know, in the movies or kind of have become a little bit more cliche, but the embodied experience of what that's like is really very, very traumatic. I'm just curious, you know, kind of like what more you can say about that or how you moved through it. So there's the experience of, of going through it when you're that age, which for me just felt like survival. Uh, um, and uh, there were periods of time I ended up switching schools in high school, completely left the school that I had been going to since kindergarten, ended up moving to another school and reforming some friendships. And I think, you know, at that point I was, it was always about looking for something else, looking forward, looking to something that was going to save me, whether that was going off to college or hopefully finding some friends and I, you know, it was to me almost like a a daily survival tactic. And um, I know my, you know, I, I did have my family around me, but it was pretty clear and pretty evident that things were not going well. And you know, I, I look back on those times now as really bleak, but at the same time, it was all that I could do just to kind of get through it. And and that was my goal at that point. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure there's some value in that experience that we can talk to. And, and I want to circle back, actually, because I'm just curious and just kind of following a you know intuition here. I don't know if there's anything there, but I'm curious a little bit more about the music aspect. I often feel that fear 
is something that really keeps people, uh, and myself included, from leaning further into music. That to some extent, you know, to play an instrument, you you've got to kind of be a little fearless. And um, so I'm just kind of curious to learn a little bit more about kind of like why, what was your journey with music and and how are you able to move through it, you know, maybe without fear or how did it help, you know, kind of you through that time? So I, I love that question and I'm, I'm smiling because I remember my first music teacher who I guess I've never thought about this before, but kind of like was my first mentor in life. Like we all look to mentor relationships and, um, Lou Lawson at Modders Music was my first mentor because he had a joy for music. He had, he embraced my passion for it. And I'll tell you what I think did it for me. He was a blues player. And for him, it was all about feel and emotion. It wasn't about notation or scales. It wasn't drudgery. It was this joy that he had putting on a Cream album or a 77 Clapton bootleg and playing along to it and teaching me. And I think he saw me as this, as as a kid who really um, felt it. And it's funny, I love conversations like this because you gain realizations that you hadn't really thought of before. And I realize now that the blues to me really matched the way that I was leading my life back then. It was, there was a sadness to my existence. And for for some reason, a suburban kid in a small practice room with a tiny little amp and an old Fender Stratocaster guitar, um, I really felt it. And he felt it. And I think that relationship, I look back on it now I ended up running into him. I'm in real estate now and I ended up running into him. He's a painter and he was a a sub on a job. And it was like seeing a God, you know, he made such a positive impact on my life. And when I hear, if I, if I'm ever listening to music and a blues song comes on, Lou Lawson comes to my mind and that relationship of somebody teaching me and guiding me and opening doors for me, it was complete acceptance and it was complete expression. Mm. Yeah, it's one of the the kind of unexpected joys of doing this podcast is, you know, a lot of times it happens after we're off the air. Somebody says, man, I haven't thought about that in the longest time. And I think there's something to it. I haven't quite figured out, you know, how to unpack that. But I, I think it's, you know, one of the... Again, the kind of un- unintended consequences or surprises about just being reflective and kind of going back and looking at the pieces of our lives and how these certain things impacted you. And I am a lover of music. So for me to hear you talk about kind of what I hear is like the healing aspects of, you know, blues music, it can be all kinds of genres, but certain things can really hit you at certain times. And I'm sure there's all kinds of science around this, but like there, there is something really powerful about the arts and, and, you know, 
music for me and and painting and just you know this creative dimension that does have an ability to emotionally really um move us you know in one way or another and it sounds like you know that that's your experience plus you know then then there's this mentorship thread which i know also is an important part of of your life so those two things are both pretty big big and intertwined and uh, I, I know you're very much the same way, but there are songs that I will hear now that bring out emotions that are so big. And I now look at both of my kids who are music lovers and don't, don't have the same uh, uh, likes and dislikes that I do, but... It is, it's one of my greatest joys. I'll, I'll tell a quick story if you don't mind. And, and yeah, I think please. this is, there's, there's something maybe genealogical about this. Um, my grandmother, um, literally when I think of her, one of, um, one of the most optimistic, wonderful people I've ever met in my entire life, I think of somebody wearing a blouse with musical notes on it. It was <laughs> almost what she wore every day. She was a piano player. She played her entire life. She played in college and she played in bands at a time when, you know, a, a woman um, in, in her station in life just did not do. And she was in Chautauqua, New York, uh, staying at a hotel called the Athenaeum, which is a very old historic hotel made all of wood. And there was a fire one night in this hotel late at night. And the hundreds of guests had to be immediately evacuated from the Athenaeum Hotel my grandmother being one of them. And she immediately found her way to a piano in the lobby and played college fight songs on the piano from the you know, 20s and 30s and 40s to calm down the people that were racing through the lobby. So that's, that's where I come from. Like that's, that's in like my- a, uh... Yeah, no, that's like a Titanic moment or something. You know? <laughs> and and it really happened. I mean, it wow. really. So my grandmother became almost a celebrity in in this little enclave of of artists and intellectuals and and people who love nature in Chautauqua, New York, uh, because of that of that experience and for her calming down these hundreds of people. And so I, you know, when I think about music and what it has done for me, you know. It was a lifeline in those years because if I could if I could come home after you know sitting alone in the in the cafeteria and 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 feeling your your stomach just in knots and coming home and picking up a guitar um, and playing an Albert Collins song or you know something that was you know a, a, a Stevie Ray Vaughan song you know just the, the, the feeling of power and control and emotion and love that flows from that was, was honestly, I, it's probably not dramatic to say that it was life-saving for me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally believe that. And, um, and I want to, I want to hear more about that. I, it's funny you say Albert Collins because my wife and I go to Jazz Fest every year and um, we go with her college roommate and husband who have become dear friends of ours. And the only Albert Collins song I really know is a song called, I think it's called I Ain't Drunk. And and the the lyrics are something like, 
I ain't drunk. I'm just drinking. <laughs> <laughs> and there inevitably reaches a moment at Jazz Fest where that line is very appropriate. Yeah, so completely relevant. <laughs> I just had to um, laugh when I heard you say that. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit. Um, and, and I think this is really great because music, you know, the arts. I mean, th- there's you got to find a way sometimes to move from one state to another. And and there's a lot of ways to do that. And sometimes it takes all of them. Um, but for me, I've found the arts um, to be very therapeutic. Sometimes, and I'm wired to kind of want to be constantly growing, right? So uh, in recent years, I'll, I'll kind of default to podcasts um, or talking on the phone when I'm in the car. But sometimes I've learned just listen to the music, you know? That's just, I don't need to be doing anything more than just listening to music. So I love that you're highlighting that. Tell me a little bit as we kind of move through, you know, this high school stage, you know, what what happens? Where, where, where do you go from here after having this, you know, into high school experience of being alone and, and, and bullied? Yeah, so for me, it didn't, get much better right away. Um, it, which is a lesson in life that when we're, when we're wishing for the next stage to, to, uh, to heal us or to save us is probably a better way to say it, um, that, that may not happen. You know, there's a Harry Chapin line that you, know, you can go 10,000 miles, but you still stay where you are. You, know, you can travel far and wide, but, but um, just traveling and just leaving doesn't necessarily change everything. I, I went away to college, went down to New Orleans, uh, which was great in some ways. Tulane was wonderful in terms of music and food, two of my, uh, the most important things in my life now, music and food. Uh, New Orleans um, exploded that part of me, but I wasn't ready for it socially. I, I wasn't, I just wasn't there. I didn't have the social skills to be able to handle the, the kids, the guys in my dorm. And I did have a couple of friends, but after a year and a half, I felt that it was really not working for me, which was not, not anything new at that point. And came home for six months. I really give my parents a lot of credit because if my kids you know, came home after a year and a half and were living at home, I'd really get worried. And they let me just kind of follow this path. A good friend had a sister who lived in Saratoga Springs, New York. And I visited it while I was back at home, halfway through college, and fell in love with the town of Saratoga Springs and ended up transferring to Skidmore College, which is a very small liberal arts college in Saratoga Springs. And that's where I met my people. I, I, I felt like for the first time in my life, uh, the people in at Skidmore were artistic. They were smart. They were sensitive. They were. They had a zest for life, and all of a sudden, some doors started to open for me. Mm, amazing, right? So, great lesson there. You know that sometimes it takes a lot of work, but you you can find your people. You can. Yeah, and when you do, you know, boy. You know, a lot opens up. So, talk about you know, kind of what that was like to find your people. What what did that lead you to? It it, it, it so it there was one kind of defining moment for me. I I had 
Um, you know, it all started slowly. I started to make some friends. I was doing pretty well. I was an English major. One of my professors won a Pulitzer Prize when, when I was there. It was a pretty exciting time. And I was getting my legs under me, you know, for the first time, you know, a lot of, a lot of people feel like they're, they feel comfortable in their own skin when they're 10. For me, it was 19 or 20 where I finally felt like, okay, this is, I feel, I feel comfortable being me for the first time. And, uh, it turns out that, um, this was my first kind of lesson in leadership that, uh, one of the dorms had a president and my senior year, the president of this particular dorm transferred and they had an opening and somebody called me and said, would you do it? We don't have anybody else who can do it. You're the only, you know, would you do it? And there was this moment where I either said yes or said no. And I said, yes. I don't know why I said yes. It was incredibly courageous for me at the time. Looking back at it now, it was a minor leadership role being president of a dorm at Skidmore College, but it gave me my first taste of actually leading, speaking in front of a group. I don't think I'd ever spoken in front of more than four people in 19 years or 20 years. And it gave me an opportunity to really feel what that felt like and to kind of take those training wheels off. And by the time I graduated, I had an inkling that, that there was something afoot, there, that there was, there was a life outside of this small, invisible, fearful, constrained life that I had led. I, it was like a light under the door uh, at that point. Mm-hmm. And that was all you needed, just a little light. That right? was it. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. And yeah. so, yeah, tell me, you know, kind of where do you go from there with that light? What, what happens? Well, that, that really is where everything opened up for me. And when I look back at my life, there, there were a couple of defining moments. But when I graduated with this highfalutin English degree and not a real good sense of what I wanted to do in life, and uh, a, a friend of mine had said that there was a program in Israel where you could teach English to senior citizens. And you could, they would fly you out there for free and they would put you up for a year and you could teach. And, and um, I accepted and um, got on a plane. Um, first time doing something like that by myself. And I remember this moment like it happened yesterday. I was sitting on the plane. I had my journal in front of me. And I was really thinking to myself, why in the hell did I do this? Like, why would I put myself out like this? I didn't have to do this. Um, I had a real cushy job at Camelot Records back in Mayfield Heights, Ohio, in the alternative music aisle that I had left after college. (laughs) And I had a lot, I had, I had, I knew my aisle real well. And I had left all of that for this crazy thing that I was doing. And I remember I opened up my journal. And there was a phrase that I had read when I was in college. It's usually attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt. And it is, do one thing a day that scares you. That was her phrase. And I wrote that in my journal. Do one thing a day that scares you. And what that meant to me immediately was, when I landed for the next year, I was going to push in every way that I possibly could. And... I, my little escape hatch was nobody knew me. Nobody knew that I was going there. 
And if I needed to come home and I failed miserably, I would hop on a plane and come home and I'd go back to Camelot Records and go back to the alternative music aisle, you know, pushing CDs. And what that did for me that year was life-changing. It, it, it's, again, feels almost cinematic or cliche, but I literally landed and felt like every day if there was something uncomfortable, if I felt uncomfortable, I would say yes to it. And that year completely changed my life. And and I mean, first of all, I haven't heard Camelot rec- Records um, uh, uh, referenced in in a long, long time. So now you're you're bringing things back to me. I, I don't think I would have maybe ever remembered. Um, but uh, talk a little bit about because I know this this kind of idea stepping into fear becomes a major theme for you um, in your in your work, and we'll talk about that. But Tell me a little bit about seeing that quote, uh, embracing it intellectually, one thing. But, but how did you, being somebody that was alone and really you know, full of fear for most of your life, yeah. actually do that? How did you actually, uh, what, what, do you think it was like kind of a calling that was just your time to let go of it? Or did you have support to actually step into the fear? No support at all. I think it was a feeling of, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to escape. If this, I, I, I really felt, I, like I called an epiphany and I really, I really feel it was that way for me, that, if, that I was either going to take this opportunity or I was going to return home and, and never come out of that shell. And I think the way that, it, that I did it, and it was not by design, it was, it was by trial and error, was it was little, small actions. It wasn't skydiving on day one. It wasn't, you know, um, a, a, a walking into a crowded marketplace and talking to people and trying to speak different languages. It was can I get myself to the post office where I don't exactly know how it works, how you mail a letter? It's somebody says, hey, um, a, a few of us are going out for coffee after, you know, after uh, our lessons with, with the seniors. Do you want to go? And saying yes versus no. It was those little actions that started to build. I made this commitment to say yes. And those little actions started to build one upon another. And then all of a sudden, and you know this, and anyone listening to the podcast knows this, once you do it, you feel like, you know what? I got that. I can do that. I can do that. And, and, and that's really what it was. It was, a, it was an assemblage of small moments of saying yes that led to a feeling of, by the time I came back, of... I'm a courageous, I'm a, not just a person doing courageous things, I'm actually a courageous person. That shift changed my life. Yeah, uh, amazing. And really, I think, so simple, but so hard and really important for people to know. Because when you talk about the conditioning, societal, I mean, not, not just an individual uh, family unit, but but a whole societal conditioning, which you know is a is a very real. To 
have a path forward can be really difficult. It, people can get really, really stuck. And I totally agree with you. And I'm really glad you said that, that, that just taking the smallest step and doing tiny things over and over again towards where you'd like to be will get you there. And, and I love how you said not just doing courageous things, but you became, that's who you became, a courageous person. Yep. It's, it's really important. I, 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 I think that's, that's probably the, the social media soundbite we're going to use here because that is big. Okay, so talk about, uh, and, and of course, like you're going to have those epiphanies in Israel of all places, right? I mean, that, that's where it happens. Um, so so let, let's, let's talk, you know, kind of about how this really starts to play out you know, in your adult life now, you've had this experience, you've had this, this whole experience, everything that you've experienced as a child through to now being a courageous person. What do you do with that? So um, when I landed, my mother, another one of my mentors, handed me a book and it has become almost like a Bible to me. I feel like I've read it 80 times. And the name of the book is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. It's, it was probably um, written about 25 years ago. Susan Jeffers is the author. And you don't have to know much more than the title of the book. There is so much freedom in knowing that if you are growing, if you are um, um, moving forward in your life in a positive direction, you will feel fear. That fear isn't the enemy. It's actually inaction that's the enemy. That's So coming off of that Israel experience and getting a copy of that book, which is probably 80 pages long, it's this tiny little thing, made me realize I could continue doing this. I, it wasn't just, just about being in another country. I could do this in my real life. You know, I got a job. I became a fundraiser for a, a decade and and. I just started, I call it being a fear chaser. I kind of started looking for opportunities to make myself uncomfortable. And to this day, if you present me with an uncomfortable opportunity, I'm going to take it. And, um, and that doesn't mean that it always goes well, by the way. <laughs> there, there, you, there is a difference between outcome and intent. And my intent is to tackle the uncomfortable action. The outcome may be something that is, is a failure. It may be an abject failure. It may be something that, that the outcome wasn't in any way what I expected or wanted. But I began to search for opportunities to push myself into areas of discomfort. Anybody who's an athlete or a yogi knows it's not fun to strap on a pair of running shoes, usually. And on a cold morning, open your front door and, and, and start running down your street. It, it's not innate in us. It's so much easier to stay in bed. But we know that every time you do it, you get better, you get stronger. I'm a, I, I've been practicing yoga for 16 years. And being in, in frog pose, there's nothing comfortable about it. I'm paying a yoga studio for the privilege of putting myself into this uncomfortable position. But I know the reason I'm doing it 
is that I'm going to have more grace. My breath work is going to be better. I'm going to have more comfort with discomfort after it. And that to me almost has become a mantra is can I find these little moments of discomfort that allow me to grow? And then I, you know, helping other people do that has become, I feel like my, my passion and my purpose in life. But for me, it's an ongoing process. And I honestly, I feel fear every single day. So you never graduate. You're always in class, but you're always tackling those things that you want to stay in bed, but you're just not going to. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe just say you know a little bit more about this this part that has you never graduating. You know that 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 kind of stage when the fear is there and you go out anyway. Can you try to like maybe dissect that a little bit? Because I I think some people hear that and and don't really know how to go from point A to point B when that fear is there, knowing that it's still there for you, yet you do it anyway. Maybe you could just kind of dissect that just a little bit more. Sure. So uh, unpacking that's really important. And, you know, everybody processes these things differently. So I, I think when people think about confronting fears, they think it is something beyond them. It is that it's something that somebody else does that it is something in the moment where you're going to be called to a courageous action and you're going to you know either say yes or say no in many cases there's you there's a lot of deliberation that can go on before taking a a courageous act this doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden be taking outrageous risks to me it is first off a a thought process a, a very important teacher of mine, a wonderful positive psychology professor at Harvard, a guy named Tal Ben-Shahar, taught me that there are really two different types of fear. There is what he would call real fear, which is those things which um, may be unsafe for us in some way, either physically, emotionally, those things that we very well should be afraid of, right? Taking risks unadvisedly. It's why kids shouldn't touch a stove. We should be afraid of touching the stove. We should be afraid of crossing the street. But there are also these things called toxic fears, which are our self-created fears. The fears where we are ruminating or thinking ahead about what could happen. What would people think about us? What, how embarrassed would we feel if, if people found out about this? Maybe what if we succeeded? There's a huge level of fear that we have around success. What would that mean to our lives if this actually happened, (laughs) this promotion or changing jobs or moving to a new city? There's a whole lot of unpacking. So I think the first thing to think about is, what is this fear that we're feeling really all about? Is it a true fear? Is it something legitimately we should be afraid of? Or is it something that we're creating mentally that has been an obstacle for us in the past. And if you can kind of bifurcate those, those fears that, that one would call toxic fears, I think are those areas where real growth happens. So that's number one is kind of a thought process behind it. The second is, can you take action in the moment when the moment arises? Sometimes courage can be very deliberative. 
We know, for example, I have a huge, uh, I, I almost don't want to use this example because skydiving to me is actually the worst example of, uh, <laughs> of courage because it, 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 it indicates or insinuates that you have to do something big. But there was a time, I'm, I'm very, I have a fear of heights. It is just, it's in me. <laughs> it's inherent. It has been since I was a kid. You know, I get on an eight foot ladder and I was, I was afraid. And somebody said, I have an extra seat on a plane. We're going to go skydiving. Would you want to go? So clearly there was a, a decision to be made. I thought about it. Um, I thought about the risks. And I guess there are some risks, of course. There's a risk of throwing yourself out of an airplane at 14,000 feet. But I began to realize the real fear I had wasn't about my safety. It was this feeling that I had that I couldn't deal with it. I, I had a fear of heights. If I couldn't go up eight feet, how could I go up 14,000 feet and do it? And I made the decision in that moment because it was a toxic fear, not a real fear, that I was going to do it. And I did it. And leaping out of that plane at 14,000 feet, while freaky as anything I've ever done in my life in the moment, looking out of that open door and down at space below you, when I landed, the joy, the ecstasy that I had was, I can't calculate it. And it was, I think, not because of the rush of the wind or uh, the, uh, the, uh, the experience of skydiving. It was that I surmounted a toxic fear and said yes to it. And I overcame it. And that doesn't mean that I want to do it again tomorrow or that I would advise anybody else to do it. But for me, it was a fear that I knew was deeply rooted in me emotionally. And I knew that I had to say yes in that moment. And, you know, I think again, for those people that are listening and, and they feel like, what's, what's my first step? The first step is thinking when you feel that tug, whether it's in your belly or your chest or your shoulders, when you feel that tug of fear to just stopping and trying to kind of identify where's that fear coming from? Is it real? Is it about safety? Or is it really about something else? And if it's about something else, can you leap into that moment and say yes to it? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that 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 is really good to unpack, and you know, and and reading your bio, um, you know, real estate developer, happiness entrepreneur, and founder of Scare Your Soul. Uh, th there's ob you're obviously knowledgeable on the subject, not just from your own experience, but from getting educated and supporting other people doing it. Talk a little bit about today, you know, kind of where you are with those three things, you know, uh, unpack what those three, three things um, are in your life today. And, and, and I'm especially curious about happiness entrepreneur and scare your soul. <laughs> yeah. It, when you list those three, real estate developer tends to, get a nod in a, in a social conversation, but the other two really, really peak interest. Um, yeah. And, and listen, you know, I, I, I often being in real estate myself, you know, feel a, a bit of a, uh, there's a little shame around the subject, you know, people equate real estate developers with being, you know, greedy, you know, money hungry, whatever business people. Um, and I think you can bring, and that's certainly what 
what I'm trying to do with our work is bring consciousness, happiness, you know, something much more than maybe the tradition. So happy to hear about how you've brought that to all of your work. Absolutely. So I, I actually view real estate development the exact opposite of that. My my father was a high school teacher uh, when I was uh, real young, uh, up until I was six months old. Both of my parents were high school teachers. I think he had $400 in the bank when he saw a parcel of land and decided that it that a medical building should be built on that site um, where people were not being served and dummied up a set of blueprints. Uh, they probably had no basis in reality, went to every bank in town and got turned down. And finally, an insurance company decided it was a really good idea not only to build a 40,000 square foot building on that space, on that parcel, but an 80,000 square foot building. And if he could pre-lease the, the building 100%, that with no equity, they would, they would fund the equity for the building, which they did. And his career began. And I saw my father be courageous in his business life, creative, innovative, visionary, building malls and, and office buildings. So I really view real estate development as, as an incredible calling. Not everybody can do it. It, it. it takes an enormous set of skills that are really varied. And um, so I really view my, you know, my work as a real estate developer as, as, as one of my finest qualities and one of the most challenging things that I do. So to me, it's not in any way about greed. It's about vision and community and dealing with all types of people all the time. So I, I love real estate. It, it balances out my life. And, and, and I love it. I did, um, as I mentioned earlier, meet a, a wonderful professor from Harvard who, who kind of illuminated this whole field of positive psychology, which is the study, I guess you could say it's the study of happiness or the, the science of happiness. And it really blew my mind that there were people studying happy people, not just the pop psychology books that you see at the bookstore, but, but people legitimately who were studying why do people who meditate, why are they happier? You know, what drives happy? What do happy people do? Why does money not make people happier? You know, and I love that there was a field and a science behind it. Now, I'm an entrepreneur, so I didn't just get geeked out on the science. I felt like, how can I actually bring this to people's lives? That, that's my nature. Um, and certainly the nature that I've had, you know, since my epiphany on, on the airplane that day. So... Uh, the first thing that I did was to create a happiness incubator. Um, it was an organization that married science with experience. We created probably 40 or so experiences. Um, I married couples in bars to uh, show people uh, the experience of love. We created gratitude walls and murals around our city. I ran parades through office buildings. I did with a team of 30, all kinds of incredible things just to teach people about happiness. And loved it, did a, a wonderful TEDx talk with a colleague of mine. Um, doing a TED talk was a bucket list experience and I loved it. And what kind of grew from that was Scare Your Soul. Scare Your Soul to me took all of the work that I had done in positive psychology and happiness and distill it down to what I think is 
the key to so much happiness in life, and that is pushing comfort zones. The same thing you and I have been talking about. It is, can you in the moment push from comfort to discomfort in a way that's going to make you happier, more connected, more loving, more mindful, and scare your soul's job in the world is to inspire you to do that. Um, and I didn't know what we were doing <laughs> when we started in some ways. In some days, I still, I, it's still an evolving process, but we're now five years in and we now offer weekly courage challenges for free. Anybody can sign up for them or visit us on social media. And each week we have a curated a challenge. They're small, they're not big, but the goal is to do exactly what you and I talked about. And that is small acts that get you feeling not like you're doing courageous things, but that you are living a courageous life. And, and I think this is why, you know, you and I are, are drawn to each other. I've certainly taken an interest in what you're doing because I share a similar belief for um, my real estate development work. And then also, you know, have been pursuing these um, other ventures, including this podcast, that are aimed at helping people uh, through the journey of life. Right? You're really focused on the fear part, the courage part, and you know, I'm coming at it from a, a little bit of a um, holistic uh, approach. But we both have this um, desire to use our life experience and to try to be helpful to one another in you know this thing that we share called life uh, and and i and, and when you do that you know the the most you know incredible things open up and you know i'm just kind of like struck by hearing your full story and that you know you can really see really see how important it was for you to really have that fully traumatic embodied experience of being alone in the lunchroom to get to Israel, to get to the the skydive, to get to all of the other things that you do today that might be scary, including, you know, just the idea of having a platform that is focused on the subject. Um, but when you see how it's impacting other people and you see how it's resonating with people, you know, incredible things are opening up for, for you and for other people. But talk a little bit about, you know, what is opening up for you? I know you're doing a lot of great things around this subject. Talk a bit about kind of how that's unfolding now. Sure. So, just a, a quick story that I think may be almost like a, a metaphor for, for people like you and me, and I'm sure many of the, the people listening to this podcast. One of the incredible gifts of, of this work is I've been able to travel and, and lead retreats. And I was in Bali uh, a, a few years ago and met with a healer in Bali. And he took me aside and kind of put his hands on my shoulders. And he said, You're, you think that when you uh, retire, when you get older, you're going to put your feet up and you're going to relax and say, you know what, it's been a good life. I've worked hard and I've inspired people. He said, your life is like a grain of sand in an oyster. There's always this friction. There's always going to be friction. 
And that friction is this feeling of you need to grow. And it was almost like he validated this feeling inside of me that there isn't a finish line, right? There, there isn't this time where you just cash in your chips, but that it's a lifelong pursuit of growing. And, um, and that feeling of friction, again, goes back to that same thing that I read in Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, that we're, you're all, if you're growing, you're always going to be feeling these feelings. And so for me, I, I, I lead this kind of dual life. One is ch- challenging myself every day. Um, doing this with you is challenging me. I, I had feelings of fear and trepidation about, about doing this with you. And, and that's exactly where I want to be. And then the other side of it is being able to speak to people around the world about their journeys and about almost giving them a permission slip to do the things in their lives that they feel fearful about or uncomfortable about. And it is that where I receive so much. I mean, it's beyond payment for the, the efforts that, that, that my team and I put in. When somebody sends an email and says, I said, I love you first. I quit my job and started my own business. I had a baby. One of my favorite stories is that one of our first ambassadors is a CrossFit instructor and a dance instructor. She is cut, ripped, um, fierce in the best way possible. And what she told me scared her the most was the concept of holding hands with somebody and walking down the street with them. Because when she was young, she came from an abusive situation in her family. And touching somebody's hand or being touched or being hugged was the worst thing that she could think of. So for me, flinging myself out of an airplane felt courageous. For her, it was holding hands with somebody and walking in a mall. And that's when I felt like, you know what, we have, we're on to something here. Because it's not about my challenges. It's not about your challenges. It's the fact that we all have challenges. And if we can inspire each other we're actually going to be doing something in this world. The world might actually be better for these efforts. And that keeps me kind of going every single day. It just, it, it just I feel like it's a calling that I somehow lucked into, but is, um, is something which really makes me feel like I'm living myself in a way that I'm being worthwhile to humanity. Yeah, and, and you know what I'll just kind of reflect back to you and observing you, and hearing your story is that you are very much in like a very, this is just how I experience you when I hear you share kind of how you are supporting other people in this specific space. You are very much in a authentic embodied experience of who you are actually, right? And that that is pretty awesome considering where you came from, where that was so uncelebrated and that was so um, hidden, right? You know, so now here you are, when you start to kind of talk about courage and stepping into fear and supporting people, you are strong. This is, you know, you're in your lane. You are really... um, authentically expressing yourself in a powerful way. And um, 
Wow, that's really great to see. And um, it's really great for other people to see because it's possible. And, um, you know, I, I'm just give you a lot of credit and, and commend you and appreciate you. I, I'm, you know, getting my own sense of courage just listening to you. Um, so I'm sure what you're doing in, in you know, your workshops and in the one-on-one work and, and everything that you're doing, you know, in this field is really making a difference. So thank you. And thank you for taking time to share all of that. And um, yeah, any final thoughts or any kind of thoughts as we start to wrap up that you want to share? First of all, I I loved the fact that that music became such an important part of this conversation. Um, I will I I would be remiss if I didn't say that the actual first validation that I had that scare your soul was something I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing was I. I have a terrible singing voice. I mean, you could tell how incredibly annoying and grating my my real voice is. But when I sing, it's it's awful. And I, I I've known that my entire life. I was told that by choir teachers and by everybody else. So I chose to sing in front of a busy restaurant on a Sunday morning during the the brunch rush. There was a line out the door, and I brought my guitar and I sang in front of this. Lineup of people. All they were wanting to do was to have brunch. And first of all, they looked at me like I was crazy. Then they started laughing and smiling. Then they started throwing money into my guitar case. And I wasn't any good. And that wasn't the point. It was the feeling, first of all, that I engendered in them because they saw somebody doing clearly something out of his lane. But the feeling that I had when I left. I put my guitar in my guitar case and I strapped it on my back and I walked down Coventry Road in Cleveland, Ohio. And the feeling I had was like that I was Teflon. Like nothing could affect the feeling of joy and power that I had in that moment. That feeling to me is scare your soul. That feeling is the feeling we have when we tackle those things in life that we're afraid to do but are holding us back. And when we do them, we get this huge burst of confidence and joy. And to me, the fact that it's intertwined with music is just, I think, a wonderful part of this conversation. You have brought me back to my, to my roots in terms of music. I haven't thought about it in a long time. And so I'm going to put on some Albert Collins in honor of you and this podcast after we're done. And I'm going to uh, dance around my kitchen. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, Scott, thank you. It's great to have you here and to call you a friend and look forward to continuing to to jam on, on life together. So uh, thanks again. I appreciate you. Thank you. Right back at you. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.